0: So with regard to the humanity of Christ, Luke 2, 7 tells us that he was born as a normal baby. And given the mysticism that is sometimes associated with this in Roman Catholicism and other conceptions of Jesus, I think it's important for us to stress that Jesus' birth was a normal birth. The birth itself was not the thing that was miraculous. It was a normal birth. It was in an unusual place although perhaps not that unusual for the first century. They didn't have uh, hospitals and places that you would go, similar to what we have today. So from that perspective, it was not particularly unusual. But the thing that was miraculous was what came before this, the conception of Christ, not his actual birth. And then verse 52, he grew up like any other man. He kept increasing in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. And so we have this... I don't know if you would call it a paradox per se, but you have Jesus going through the normal stages of human development from baby to toddler to child to teenager to adult. And so these points are important for us to remember in light of understanding properly Christ's human nature. Furthermore he looked like a man. Matthew 13 is an interesting passage. Jesus is teaching the people in Matthew chapter 13. Uh, In this section are the parables of the sower, the tares among the wheat, the mustard seed, the leaven, and so forth. And then toward the end of this teaching, when Jesus had finished these parables, he departed from there. He came to his hometown and began teaching them in their synagogue. So that they were astonished and said, Where did this man get this wisdom and these miraculous powers? Is this not the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary and his brothers, James and Joseph and Simon and Judas and his sisters? Are they not all with us? Where then did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household. And he did not do many miracles there because of their unbelief. And so, as we look at this particular point, sometimes we have this idea from looking at uh, artist conceptions of Jesus or just sort of the mythology might be an appropriate word that has grown up around Christ in terms of our idea of him. We sort of have this idea that he walked around like Moses coming down from. The mountain with his face glowing and everybody knew that that was jesus simply by his appearance but that's not actually true jesus was a normal human being so normal in fact that when he comes and he teaches in the synagogue they say wait a minute this guy's a carpenter's son what's he doing in the synagogue he hasn't been trained in all these things how does he have the authority and the knowledge and the skill to explain God's word, not with Rabbi so-and-so says this and Rabbi so-and-so says that, but simply, this is what God says because he is speaking as God. So he looked like a man. Furthermore, he had human emotions or feelings. Verse 35 is the shortest verse in the Bible. Uh, Jesus wept. And the context of that is, as you well know, the death of Lazarus and oddly enough when Jesus heard that Lazarus had died he did not go immediately you would think that he would go immediately and and uh, that perhaps he would be in time to uh, somehow save Lazarus from death and the people were astonished because he did not go at first and then he gets there and and Martha actually uh, sort of rebukes him and says why didn't you come right away why didn't you try to do something it's too late but as Jesus is standing there before he does the miracle of raising Lazarus from the dead before he says come forth and Lazarus comes forth Jesus weeps now this raises for us an interesting question from the perspective of what is emotion like for Jesus in light of his humanity and his deity because one of the doctrines of God is the idea that God is impassable or that God cannot be moved or changed or constrained by external forces. Let me illustrate this. When we weep, we have no control over it, like it just sort of comes over us usually, right? How, how does that look for God? If God cannot be changed, if God cannot be controlled by something outside himself, what does it mean that Jesus wept? Now, I'm not questioning the genuineness of it. I'm not questioning the reality of it. I'm just wanting us to ponder it from the perspective of that I believe that this was a choice for Jesus more so than it is for us and all the more significant in that he expressed grief outwardly and openly and in the sight of all the people. And he did so knowing full well what he was about to do next. That was not the only place that he grieved. In verse 27 of John, it says chapter 12 verse 27, now my soul has become troubled and what shall I say father save me from this hour but for this purpose I came to this hour. And you have in that moment this 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 strange conjunction of knowing that the cross is about to come next, knowing that that is God's will. And yet he says, what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I came to this hour. He knows what's about to come next. He knows that it must happen. And yet, in some respects, he says, but if there was any other way, let it be that way instead. Was that sin? No, because the Bible says that Jesus never sinned. And yet there's an element of the grief and the anguish and the, without in any way denying his deity, be at least the appearance from someone looking in of uncertainty that we go through now yes Yeah. So um <coughs> let me let me pause for a second here and, and pull something else because I'm trying to trying to remember the exact terminology because I don't want to uh, I don't want to misspeak here because I think that this is a very um, a very important point for us to think about yes that's right All right. so back in 2004 uh, one of the professors that I sat under at seminary uh, Dr. Sam Dawson wrote an article called is there a contradiction in a person of Christ the importance of the dual nature and dual consciousness of Jesus Christ um So my short answer would be go read that article, and I'll read the article again, and let's talk about it further, because that is just such a a complex issue to talk about. But along those lines, I think it's important to remember this, sometimes, We have to ask ourselves, what's the precise relationship between Jesus and the Son of God, the third person of the Trinity? Some of the, the heretical understandings of this have basically said that they are two persons. And there's a different ways that this is explained. One would be that the Son of God comes down and indwells the human man, Jesus, at his baptism. But that's a different sort of a thing. That would be like that would be like the Holy Spirit coming down on on Saul and enabling him to have victory or something like that in the early days of his reign. And that's not the way that the Bible describes Jesus' baptism. That's not the way that the Bible describes Jesus' person. So it's not that there is this harsh separation between Jesus and the Son of God. So the question is, are there two persons? I think we would have to say there's one person. Jesus is the Son of God. Not Jesus is with the Son of God, or the Son of God is with Jesus, or that sort of thing. Jesus wasn't an ordinary man on whom God sort of dwelled in him and then left him at the cross. There's some, some, uh, some cults or some uh, heretical understandings that would ha- take that perspective. but. In terms of natures, so we have person, we have nature, we have consciousness. How many natures does Jesus have? You have to say that there's two natures, right? Because we're going to see passages here a little bit later where it says that Jesus is God and Jesus is man and deny either one is at the very least, a, an improper understanding, and quite possibly such a flawed understanding that that person doesn't really know God at all. We'll see that from the first chapter Consciousness, I think, gets into the question to some degree um, with how these are expressed, which I think gets to your question. So, for example, um, let's just take a simple one. When Jesus makes a statement and says something like, no man knows the day or the hour when, when I will return, is he lying? I would say no. I think he's saying from the perspective of humanity, no one knows that day or the hour. And even to the degree that he's speaking from the perspective of his human nature, he doesn't know the day or the hour. And yet there's an extent to which, as God, he knows everything, and the fact that we say, well, um, you know, how does that look? Well, in John, he knows uh, Nathaniel under the tree before he goes and meets him, right? And we'll talk more about that next week when we get into the deity of Christ. So again, this comes down to so let's take it from something like intellect or knowledge to something like emotion. I'm gonna put a question mark here because I think it raises for us the question in the Old Testament when it says that God was grieved is there anything of the experience that we have that God experiences when he grieves or on the other hand when it says in for example Ephesians it says don't grieve the Holy Spirit what does that even mean so Clearly, from the passage you just looked at, John eleven thirty five, it says Jesus wept, right? So that's, I believe, a statement of fact. Um, but if God cannot change, how can he? How can he weep? How can he experience emotion? And I think we have to tread carefully here because our understanding of precisely how these things work out, I'm not sure that we can fully understand it. That being said, I think we have to have a recognition of how this works that allows for the possibility of Jesus behaving in a genuinely human way while at the same time recognizing that God is neither sinning nor being just sort of knocked over by emotion like might be our experience of it, nor being grieved for any of the wrong reasons or in the wrong way or any of those sorts of things. I think the balance of Scripture would mean that we have to hold all of those things in the proper tension. Um, I mean, even along those same lines, when it comes to something like, so we have thought, we have emotion, if you will, passions, feelings, and so forth. But even in the perspective of will, um, even when Jesus does something like eating and God doesn't eat, doesn't need to eat, um, we have this interesting perspective, which we'll, we'll get to here in a few moments of Jesus eats before the crucifixion. He also eats after the crucifixion, but there seems to be an awareness that it's not essential in the same way as before. Yes, right. Good. I don't know if this is helpful or not, but I think we tend to think of this in terms of a switch. It's not as though he's flipping back and forth between God, not God, God, not God, God, not God. It's, he can't like turn it off like that, right? And so I think it's helpful for us to think about that Jesus is epitomizing both his divine nature and his human nature in such a way that the two are working together and that sin does not corrupt either one of them. In other words, when Jesus weeps, it's not a sinful weeping, it's not a selfish weeping, it's not a, uh, in moments of grief and loss, there's times when we might be angry at God, and Jesus is not, obviously, at that point. And some of that has to do with the fact that he knows what he's about to do, but that doesn't mean that his expression of grief is any less real, simply because he knows that he's going to raise Lazarus from the dead in the next moment, you know? And so again, I mean it these are these are complicated things for us to think through. Um,
1: <laughs> correct.
0: And yet I don't think the apostles are speaking inaccurately when they say Christ died for our sins either. Um, but that yes, that's a, that's an important thing to think through. So any of you are interested in that article, I will uh, I'll post on the church Facebook page and you can check that out. I think that would be helpful and I'd love to discuss it further because it's been a while since I thought through all the nuances of that and I think that's certainly something for us to, to talk about. Yes, Sandra. So I guess my answer would be yes, but not in a different way than he would grieve at any other point. Uh, From the perspective that um, we usually grieve when forces outside of our control overwhelm us. Does that make sense? And I don't think that that's ever God's experience. Even for Christ, I don't think that he was grieving because of the Be, uh, uh, yeah, uh, and I, I, I hesitate to say that, because I'm just trying to think <coughs> through what that specifically looks like. Because from the very beginning, he says, I know this is going to happen. This is God's purpose and plan. Yes? Right. I think some of it comes down to what philippians 2 actually means and a lot of times especially uh, at different points i've heard people teach that passage in a way that says jesus uh, basically laid aside his deity when he came down to earth and he picked it back up again when he ascended to heaven and biblically speaking and uh, we'll see this next week when it comes to things like seeing nathaniel under the tree before he's about to do it the power that he had from god all those sorts of things he didn't lose anything of his deity. He added to himself the humility of being human. And so I think that's important that um, when Jesus Jesus humbled himself, Jesus did not um, give up being God in order to do so. And in connection with that, I think the tension with what you're saying, Paul, although I think it's we've got to try to wrestle through these issues, my tension would simply be to say that like I was saying with the light switch example, I don't think he's switching back and forth between two states. He's both at the same time. He's both human and divine. And yet there are times, I suppose, when God speaks, if we want to say anthropomorphically, in terms of God's description of himself in terms that are not wrong, but also clearly not applicable to him in the same way that they are to us. When well, God says something like, the arm of the Lord is not cut short. It has significant truth. It's not just a figure of speech, and yet at the same time, God doesn't have a physical arm, but he describes things in that way so that we can have some possibility of trying to understand what it is that he's doing. Yes.
1: God working through us. And I know it's not the same, but I just wonder if there's some similarity in that not that it's a switch, but I always picture side note like God has and I know it's not like it's for on the resident. God has this huge bin of souls and when somebody's born Instead of taking this human soul, he inserted his spirit, soul, however you want to put that, into this man. So there is unity, just like there is unity with us and our body. So, but thinking about that, there's no separation, but there are times when the human side of us,
0: The one thing that I would say back to that, I'm sure this is probably what you meant, is Jesus was pre existent in a way that none of us are. Correct. Our lives begin at conception. Jesus didn't. He existed from eternity before there. So, yeah, I mean, let's move on. But my point is, this is these are important things for us to think about, particularly as they relate to Christ. And they go beyond, I think, and, and no criticism. There's nothing wrong with a simple understanding that Jesus came at Christmas and was born as a baby, you know? But I think sometimes we want to leave it there and not think about how profound that is. And so that's what I'm trying to help us do. So Jesus wept. Um, Though tempted, he did not sin. And this is a crucial point that unites some of the topics that we've just been talking about, Hebrews 4:15, "For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses but one who has been tempted in all things as we are yet without sin. There's a couple of important points from this. Uh, first of all, in the Old Testament, the high priest could sympathize with the people from the perspective of the fact that they themselves face temptation and also sin. But the author of Hebrews makes clear that he sympathizes with our weaknesses, and yet it is not because he then sinned, but rather because he has gone beyond further in terms of not giving in to those temptations, and so if we know the weight of sin, he knows it far more because he never once submitted to it. And this term of sympathizing, there might be a perspective in which we might say, well, God can sympathize with us, but he doesn't know what it's like to be us. But in Christ, that objection is completely taken away. Jesus actually experienced what it was like to go through temptation in a human form and never once gave in. Think of Matthew 4 and the temptations of Satan to Christ. 30 days, 40 days in the wilderness, and Satan says, Hey, aren't you a little bit hungry? And Jesus said, Yes, but that's not the point. I'm not going to go about it in this way. Don't you want to skip all that cross business and be ruler of the earth now? Jesus said, That would, from one perspective, be better, but... I'm not going to bow down and worship you, because God is the only one who deserves worship. And, and ultimately, the only reason that you have the kingdoms of this world is because God let you have them for a time. And so Christ goes through temptation, and though he is tempted, he does not sin. This, as an aside, should give us hope, because we get in the moments of temptation, and we say, you know what? I've come this far. Why not just you know, finish out whatever this is. I'm having this moment of greed, and I've already committed in my heart that I'm going to follow through on it, and I've started typing in my credit card number, I'm standing in the checkout line, or I'm about to sign the paperwork for whatever it is, and we're like, you know, I kind of recognize that this is an expression of greed, but you know what? I'm already this far. I mean, I've already sinned, so what's the big deal? I'm going to just sort of follow... Even in that moment, the fact that Christ experienced temptation, did not give in, and is a high priest who knows our weaknesses should give us hope that even at that point in the process of moving from being tempted to having sinned and experiencing the consequences of it, we can stop and, by God's grace, turn away from it. Is that really hard at that point? Sure. But by God's grace, we can do it. And part of how we can do it is because of Jesus and what he experienced on our behalf. Connected with this, just a a fun thing to think about. Uh, is it a way in a manger where it says, "Little Lord Jesus, no crying he makes"? I think that's the song where it says that. Do we think that that's true? Yeah. Right, right, right. So uh, just something for us to think about. We're not gonna belabor the point, but the difference, there's a difference between expressing a genuine need and expressing it in a demanding way. All of those of who, you who've had kids know exactly what I'm talking about. There's a difference between, I'm thirsty, can I have a drink, and give this to me now, you know? Jesus never experienced that second. But I think he did ex- genuinely express needs. so. Just as an aside, I do think Jesus cried as a baby. I do think he asked for things as a, as a toddler. I do think that he did all of these things, but he did them in such a way that Hebrews 4.15 says, he's been tempted in all things as we are yet without sin. And I'm sure that there were moments when Mary and Joseph were behaving selfishly like some of us do as parents. You know, my kid has asked me this question 40 times today, and I'm just not going to answer right now. right and even in that it wasn't sin because he was obeying what god the father wanted him to do you know and uh, so i think this is an important point for us to think about he had a normal human body matthew 4 2 we talked about this a moment ago after he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights he then became hungry i'm fascinated by the fact that it says after he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights he then became hungry because My experience of it is that hunger kicks in a whole lot quicker than that. But the point of it would be, I think at the point when his hunger became not overwhelming, but extremely intense, that's the point at which Satan came to him and tempted him. When Jesus is dying on the cross, after this, Jesus said, I am thirsty. And there's an element to which that is both actually true and prophetically significant. Um... Right, right, exactly. He was tired, Jesus being wearied from his journey. And yet we have all of the things in the Old Testament that say, "God." I mean, Elijah and Mount Carmel. That's exactly what he mocked Baal about. He's tired, he had to take a nap, he's gone on a journey. Jesus is doing some of the same things that... Elijah mocked the followers of Baal about saying their God did this, and yet the difference is that Jesus is doing it not out of a position of weakness, but rather out of a position of experiencing the entirety of humanity from the perspective of doing all the things right that Adam did wrong. Romans 5 I think makes that point very clearly and Jesus died as Bob said a few minutes ago this is clearly something that God cannot do the famous line God is dead aside or more recent turning that on the head with some Christian movies um, God cannot die and yet in Luke 23:46, Jesus, crying out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Having said this, he breathed his last. What did that look like for Jesus to die? And in terms of the... And I don't want to make too much of this, but in terms of the conscious experience of it, in a way that I don't think most, most, if any of us, actually experience it this way. Generally speaking, people die when their bodies simply cannot sustain them any longer. And yet Jesus had the power such that he could have undone everything that the Romans had done to them. He could have constrained an army of angels or even with a word leveled the entirety of the spot on which he was standing and started over from scratch. And yet, he said, no man takes my life away from me, I willingly lay it down. And we think about the significance of that and are, are, I think, should be profoundly affected by the fact that death, just like grief was not something that overcame him, he made a choice to grieve for Lazarus in a way that is beyond the way that most of us experience grief. In this, he chose to experience death willingly and freely and to fulfill prophecy and to obey God's will and all of these other sorts of things, and yet it was a choice. And he did it with the attitude that Stephen also expressed in Acts 7, which was, father forgive them so jesus died but jesus did not merely die he was also raised he had a body even after his resurrection this is an important point to the accusation which we'll get to under why it's important that jesus body was not essential to his humanity or some sort of arguments along those lines How do we know that his body is real? He says, see my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. I do think that we have to recognize that Jesus in his post-resurrection body is clearly able to do things that we don't think are humanly possible in terms of he appears in a room amongst them without opening the door and things like that. And there's been a whole lot of ink spilled over whether that's what everyone who has a resurrected body is able to do or if it was specific and unique to Jesus. But the point would be, along the same lines of what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, what was corruptible, weak, flawed, and so forth is remade to be perfect, even as God originally intended humanity to be. And again, the weakness and the imperfection in terms of what I was just describing is not a sinfulness per se, but it's rather a description of human limitations that are unique to our experience here on earth that we will not experience in the same way in heaven. Why do we sleep? Because we get worn out, because we get tired, because life is too much for us. Why do we eat? Because we need it to survive and to to be sustained. Why do we? All of these things that go on, I don't think that we're going to experience them the same way in heaven. Will we eat? The Bible talks about the marriage supper of the Lamb. And I don't think it's merely symbolic. I think that it is an actual and an enjoyable thing that we will participate in. And yet I don't think it will be a necessity in the same way that sometimes... um, On Sunday morning, when you're ready for lunch, you sort of feel like the necessity of it's time to eat, you know, that sort of a thing. Jesus had a real and a genuine body. Why are all these things important? As we said already, only a man could die. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. When it says being found in appearance as a man, (coughs) pardon me, It's not saying he just looked like a man, we've talked more about that already, but being found in appearance, form, manifestation as a man, he humbled himself by obeying to the point of death, even death on a cross. Only a man could die. Only a man could die on behalf of other men. Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death That is, the devil. Could God redeem people apart from God becoming man? I think the answer seems to be no, based on this passage. And in the same way, like I said earlier, that Adam failed, Jesus succeeds. In the same way that Adam could never pay for his own sins once he had already sinned, Jesus never sinned and took upon himself the sins of all that God intended to save. Only a man who is both man and God could perfectly go between man and God, for there is one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. This is extremely important to stress for any person who feels that they must come to a priest or a reverend, or a pastor, or whatever title they want to give to someone that they feel is a representative of God that is the mediator on earth between God and men. I pray for you all, but my prayers are not essential for you to have access to God in the way that Jesus is essential for us to have access to God. And I think that that's very important for us to remember because Uh, sometimes there's this perspective of I've got to be in the right place or talk to the right person or something like that in order to deal with sin whether it be confession whether it be, you know even, even conceptions of how we deal with sin there is nothing in scripture that mandates physical movement between pews to the front of a building in order for you to deal with sin in your heart you can deal with God, with God with the sin in your heart, whether you're sitting in your seat in the pew, whether you're sitting in a folding chair in here, whether you're driving in your car, whether you're lying awake at night, and the one that you go through to do that is Jesus, not any other human person. Now, we've got to deal with human people when we sin, clearly, ask their forgiveness and so forth, but Christ is the one mediator. And then this is extremely essential if we deny that Jesus was a man, we call God a liar and we are his enemies. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God, and every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist of which you have heard that it is coming and now is already in the world. So if you say, Jesus... I don't confess Jesus, I don't confess that he's come in the flesh, then you've essentially said God is a liar and you've set yourself up as an enemy of God. And so it's very important for us to recognize that in our attempt to preserve the sinlessness and the uniqueness of Christ that we do not minimize his humanity because to do so is a fundamental error that borders on depending on how firmly we hold to it and how uh, emphatically we teach it, First John 4 says, you're in danger of saying, I'm opposed to God, I don't even belong to him. And so, Jesus clearly came as a man. So next week we'll look and continue this subject by looking at the deity of Christ, which I think is also important, because if the error from what we're looking at this week is to say, Jesus was a baby just like any other baby, I'm sorry, that Jesus was unlike any other baby. The error that what we'll look at next week is to say that Jesus was just like any other baby because his life has a significance that it was unique to him. So let's close with a word of prayer and we'll head into the service. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to look at these truths from your word. There are mysteries here that we can certainly not plumb the depths of in the short time we've looked at things this morning. And even in hours of reflection, we struggle to understand exactly how all these things fit together. And yet we marvel at the amazing truth that God became a man. Sharing our experience, enduring temptation like we do, even experiencing death. And we praise you, Lord, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that He was raised on the third day, that He's ascended on high, and that He is the perfect mediator between God and men. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. I mean, that would be helpful, but I certainly could like do it this afternoon and get it posted during the week, so either way, sure, okay
1: um,
0: I was actually when we were talking about this morning, I was actually thinking about that. I was thinking it'd be helpful to at least have words without music, so typed
1: up some songs, I'm not sure
0: if I will make a note to ask her about that in just a second. Yeah.